do anyone any good. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. Oh, what a night. U.S. stocks took a pounding over fears of global economic weakness and the spread of Ebola. Netflix shares tumbled 26% on disappointing subscriber growth. And in Hong Kong, Lee Ka-shing has urged student protesters to return home. Today, we'll talk about the turbulent night in the markets and the benefits of using arbitration to solve business disputes. We'll also talk about how Internet-enabled devices are changing the way we interact the world, particularly in India. Our guests this morning include Uwe Parpart of the Reorient Group, Ruth Stackpole-Moore of the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center, and Ishwar Parulkar of Cisco India. And of course, Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting is my guest host this morning. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Anita. Dramatic night. It is a dramatic night indeed. Uh, let's take a look at what happened. Well, stocks took a pounding, although Wall Street managed to pedal back from its steepest lows and safe haven government debt prices rose after U.S. and Chinese inflation data fanned worries about global slowdown, and the fear of Ebola has begun to contaminate the markets. At the closing bell, the Dow Jones stood at 16,141, down 1.1%. The S&P 500 dropped 0.8% to 1,862, while the Nasdaq lost three-tenths of a percent to 4,215. Flight from risk resulted in a massive rally in U.S. Treasuries, pushing the benchmark 10-year notes yield as low as 1.8%. That's its lowest level since May 2013. Rate futures now show that the market does not expect expect the Fed to raise rates until early 2016. That's a dramatic change from a few weeks ago. A repricing of Fed expectations also fueled a sell-off in the dollar, which has been rising recently on bets that the Fed's policy tightening while the other central banks continue easing. The euro rose 1.4% against the dollar at $1.28, and the greenback lost 1% percent against the Japanese yen at 106. Brent crude fell a day after posting its biggest daily drop in years. The Brent uh, lost 2% to $83.78 a barrel. Jeffrey's chief market strategist, David Zervos, says that investors should embrace this volatility. We're not abandoning the risk on view. We're not abandoning this view that QE works and that we're going to get across the Rubicon and make it to the upswing of a business cycle. What we're going to have to recognize that this is a much less certain time to put on precise bets about where rates, the dollar, commodities, equities, or any financial asset is going to trade. It's just, you know, you had had the Fed standing there going, we're going to keep rates on hold for two years, from 2011 to 2013. That extracts enormous amounts of volatility out of the market. That forward guidance, super powerful. And now... We don't have it. We're kind of unhinged, which is good. So, okay, sorry about that. We have a little bit of a technical glitch there. Couldn't hear the decart. Um, Peter, uh, you were saying, are you embracing this volatility like David Zervos? Well, I think the volatility is certainly going to continue. And, and it's also a sign of a breakdown in the market. I mean, there, there are many things going on internally in the market, including, you know, dramatic intraday swings, numbers of new highs and number of new lows that are being um, hit um, in, in very small periods of time. And in particular, the turnover of the market 
it now from far more new lows than there are um, sort of new highs. So this volatility is certainly going to continue um, for a while. And, and I think it's a sign that, you know, market sentiment is changing and also that there are liquidations going on uh, across a number of asset classes. So, um, you know, the question is, I mean, you've been, Peter, looking at this for a while, and you've been quite bearish about the whole situation. In fact, uh, you know, could go as far as to say you've been somewhat of a soothsayer, which is really scary (laughs) in many ways. And I suppose good, because you're our co-host on the show. Uh, The question is, have we actually hit the bottom, or or how far do we have to go? Um, I think we're a long way from the bottom. Um, I, what will happen is, and, and I've, you know, long in the tooth, I, I was around in the 87 market crash. I was around in Japan when that, that market started to tumble in 1990. Bear markets are different at each time. But, but in this particular case, I believe in particular because of all the distortions that are going on in the markets, largely because of the, 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 the priming of the central banks, we've still got a long way to go to unwind those distortions. Now, what will happen is that there will be some very, very dramatic rebounds during the courses of those declines. And in fact, you see some of the biggest market advances in what is actually a, a bear market. So we should be prepared that, um, you know, maybe fairly soon there will be a very smart um, sort of rebound. And what investors have to do now is change their approach to the markets, which is rather than buying the dips, they should be looking to sell the rallies. Now, Fed Chair Janet Yellen voiced uh, durability in the U.S. economic ex- expansion, despite the slowing growth and the market volatility. But uh, that was last weekend, before sort of the turbulence of this week hit. Will the market dismiss those comments or not? Here's what Morgan Stanley economist Ellen Zentner says. Our thinking was that, look, Janet Yellen speaks on Friday. She speaks on Friday about income inequality at a Boston Fed conference. Now, that's prepared speech, but she could easily, if market volatility continues and doesn't markets don't look to have found a bottom by then she could easily so have a few prepared dinner. remarks right before beginning that speech and that is what we had expected her to do it is her her job as the chair to step in and say let's all calm down she's seeing the same thing we are there is no coincident data on the US economy or forward-looking data yet that says look these global growth concerns have started to affect the US economy So many questions right now about the pace of the U.S. economy. Today, the Federal Reserve released its Beige Book Report, which is a survey based on reports from the 12 regional banks of the U.S. Fed Reserve System. And the report says that businesses were generally optimistic as economic activity continued to grow at a modest to moderate pace. And moderate means good in Fed speak. So all in all, not much change from the previous Beige Book and certainly nothing to indicate that the economy is taking off or coming to a grinding halt. Let's bring in Uwe Parpart, who is the head of research at the Reorient Group. Good morning, Uwe. Yeah, good morning. Uwe, what are you thinking? Are the animal spirits dead? Is there cause for concern? Oh, are the animal spirits dead? I don't know. I, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, talk about volatility is kind of interesting. I mean, there's no question that the two principal instances of um, instances of volatility in the last uh, couple of years in May of uh, 2013 and presently uh, directly uh, uh, to be laid to the feet of the U.S. Fed. Um, in uh, 2013, May, uh, Ben Bernanke uh, uh, spoke uh, sort of 
away from or uh, off of his own uh, uh, sheet of music and uh, indicated that the uh, uh, Fed might uh, start cutting back on uh, asset purchases and the uh, uh, the market uh, took a pounding. Um, and uh, then again, uh, if you go back now about, say, two or three weeks ago, you know, ago, you had a situation in which uh, everybody at the Fed was optimistic. The U.S. economy was doing fine. Uh, quantitative easing was supposed to end at uh, the end of October. And uh, rates were going to go up uh, for the first time uh, sometime in uh, June of, uh, let's say, in June of next year. Um, the Fed has... Uh, over the past five years, we've been counting, uh, not made a single correct economic forecast for mm. the U.S. economy, <laughs> not one. So could so uh, they can They've all been, not only been wrong, but they've been uh, in the same direction. They've all been overly optimistic. Uh, our indeed. view is that the economy is doing badly uh, and uh, that, the, that the whole policy guidance that the Fed giving was wrong, and, and therefore the market is now reacting. So, Uwe, is it possible that, um, you know, that, that there's been a feeling that in some ways the U.S. is a, an island of strength, but in the rest of the world we're seeing growth expectations come down, we're seeing inflation expectations come down, Janet Yellen remains positive, but is it really possible for the, the, for the U.S. to somehow, um, you know, show good GDP growth when everything else is, is slowing down? After all, the U.S. has got to export somewhere, and its main export markets um, seem to be declining. What, what, what is puzzling me is uh, how anybody thinks that the U.S. is some uh, uh, fantastic island of strength. The U.S. economy is growing at 2%. That's it for yep. this year. Uh, the IMF has been saying that, the, the World Bank has been saying that, our own view has been that maybe 2%, maybe 1.8%. Um, you know, how is that an island of strength? Uh, China is uh, growing at between 7 and 7.5%. Uh, that is pretty strong uh, and pretty significant. Um, and the, now what, about uh, the, what about the impact uh, of the removal of, of, of QE? We're going to see the end of the, uh, the asset purchases by the end of this month uh, from the Fed. What impact do you think that's going to have um, on, on the markets? Well, uh, look, I, I've... Um, we, we, we've uh, showed people uh, one chart uh, throughout this uh, uh, situation over the last few days, which is the, uh, the Fed's own uh, five-year uh, forward break-even inflation rate. Uh, that is to say, the inflation expectations going five years out. Uh, this is now, uh, you know, at, at, at around 2%. Uh, every time in the last... Uh, Five years when it's been around two percent, the, the Fed started quantitative easing, not ended it. Okay. Uh, Wait, China's inflation rate, which is uh, almost at a five-year low, I mean, this is worrisome, uh, as are the decline in sort of U.S. Uh, producer prices. Is there a concern about uh, aggregate demand? Yeah, I'm sure there is a concern about that. Uh, there, China is undergoing a, uh, a very dramatic and uh, very necessary uh, reform, internal reform process. Uh, there are parts of the Chinese economy that are uh, declining and indeed in, in, in a hard landing process. And there are parts of the Chinese economy that are, that are soaring. 
And, uh, you know, you cannot average over an economy that is uh, simultaneously going in two different directions and, uh, you know, making these kind of moves. Uh, so that, that's the situation that we have to look at. And uh, so demand in certain areas is low. In other areas, it's, it's, it's very high. Uh, and uh, GDP is just not a very good measure looking at the uh, Chinese economy right now. Okay, thank you, Uwe. That is Uwe Parpart. He is the head of research at the Reorient Group. Well, uh, the Chinese Ministry of Commerce is due to disclose the FDI data later today. Uh, that is fe- um, foreign direct investment. Peter, what are your thoughts on what to expect with the FDI data and you know how this might impact markets? Well, last month we saw a big uh, big decline in, um, in, in foreign direct investments into, into China. The markets are expecting a, a bit of a rebound in this month's um, numbers. But I think w- what it's signaling is that, you know, the overall growth is going to come in below um, sort of forecast, and it could potentially come in significantly below um, forecast. And what is going to be the really significant number is the GDP number out of China next week. Okay, shares of Netflix plunged more than 25% in after-hours trading as the streaming service announced quarterly earnings and said that that it added fewer new members than expected. The Q3 financial report showed that the company has grown to 53.1 million total members worldwide, but the addition of 3.02 million subscribers in the third quarter fell well below the company's previous prediction of 3.69 million. Peter, Netflix has been fairly confident uh, in the press recently, talking about overseas expansion. Is this just a hiccup? Well, this is a classic example of what happens to the share price of a growth stock when it stops growing. Um, and then you have to start looking at valuing it on other more fundamental um, sort of metrics. So the, the big problem um, in, the, in the announcement overnight was the, the, the expectation for Q4 EPS, which was half what the market was um, expecting. So the stock fell almost 25% overnight. There's one other problem. Um, in, the, in the numbers that they released, which is um, very, um, very significant of what's happening with other stocks. And that is the free cash flow of the company. The free cash flow is very important because you need that to invest and build your business. Um, in the second quarter, free, free cash flow was $16, uh, $16 million. It's now minus $74 million um, in this quarter. So in other words, there's been a massive decline in free cash flow. This is happening to a number of companies because what's happening is that they're actually using uh, their money to do share buybacks, which has a good impact on EPS in the short term and the markets have liked this. But of course, you take money out of the company, which means that you can't invest that in the future growth. So Netflix is one of those companies that did a big uh, share buyback. There are many, many others in the market that have been doing this. And, And the chickens are sort of coming home to roost now. The question that's being asked is if you take all this money out, give it back to shareholders, how do you grow the company? in the future. And quick question to wrap up the segment. Um, what should we be looking out for with other earnings coming up in the foreseeable future? Well, we've got more tech companies um, you know, coming up with earnings over the next couple of weeks. Um, that, that we, It'll be interesting to see um, the, the same thing, what's happening to their free cash flow. Also, we've got the financials um, you know, reporting. Um, and again, you know, we've seen some uh, pretty bad numbers from, from some of those so far. We had Walmart as well yesterday reporting and seeing um, sort of sales declining. So, you know, we've, we've got an, a, a number of indicators of what's happening overall in the U.S. economy coming, coming up. Okay, thank you, Peter. A quick look at the numbers. The euro to the U.S. is currently 1.2 U.S. dollars. U.S. to ren rate. Yen rate is 105. And uh, one Great Britain pound will buy you 12.4 Hong Kong dollars. 
The Brent crude oil is down uh, half a percent to $83.32 per barrel. The time is now 8.19 a.m. and internet-enabled devices are changing the way we interact with the world. The next phase of development promises to be a step change where devices are intelligent in ways that fulfill what seem to stretch what seemed a stretch, I should say, only a few years ago. India is taking a huge step towards developing smart devices to lay the foundation for a 100 smart cities in development. And joining us now to discuss this from Bangalore is Ishwar Parulkar, the CTO of Cisco India. Good morning, Ishwar. Uh, good morning. Ishwar, is India a manufacturing hub specifically for uh, the Internet of Everything devices? Uh, well, uh, India is on its way to becoming a manufacturing hub. I wouldn't say it's a hub yet, but there's certainly a renewed interest in developing manufacturing capability. Um, there is a preferred market access policy that the government is working on, which mandates foreign companies to manufacture a certain percentage of the products sold in India uh, to be manufactured in India. And the government also recently announced the Make in India initiative, which will reduce the red tape and produce uh, and provide incentives to develop manufacturing. Now, is this... Uh, and with the timing, with the timing of uh, in the Internet of Things, I see the manufacturing growth in India benefiting this particular sector of technology the most. And so how is this particular sector of technology different from, you know, what we've seen before in the Internet world? Um, uh, what we've seen till now is... Uh, Billions of uh, smartphones uh, and other mobile devices get connected. And what we are seeing right now is another inflection point in the build-out of the Internet, uh, which is smaller real-world devices such as home appliances, sensors, consumer electronics devices, etc., getting connected to the Internet. Now, one of the things about these smart devices are these are your day-to-day uh, uh, in-use small devices, which are uh, fairly easy to manufacture. Uh, the requirements for manufacturing are quite uh, uh, simple, uh, and uh, that's what lends them nicely to uh, any any sector that's just starting uh, to scale up manufacturing. So that's uh, uh, one piece. Secondly, the applications for this are pretty significant in India. Uh, the applications of Internet of Things are in manufacturing, retail, infrastructure, smart cities, and uh, where India is poised in terms of addressing these problems, it uh, makes this sector a uh, natural uh, sector to focus on and kind of you know take the the most out of for developing the manufacturing sector. And given that there's more internet-enabled devices than there are people on the planet now, what what is the potential for growth of, of these devices going forward, and what and what sort of revenues um, do you, do you think can you know can be gained from this? Uh, so there's. Uh, it's such a big market that it's really hard to uh, nail down an accurate number, but there's uh, 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 different sources are kind of uh, pegging the value of the Internet of uh, Things uh, in the trillions of dollars. So it's about $1 to $2 trillion is what uh, is expected to be the total value. Now, uh, keep in mind that the value includes the actual development of technologies that go into the Internet as well as the uh, markets that it can influence. So it's a it's a huge potential. Uh, there's uh, different segments of it for different players. 
uh, and uh, you know depending on which uh, which uh, part of the ecosystem you're looking at the numbers would change but it's a significant overall global opportunity which uh, goes into trillions of dollars now ishwar what would you say are specifically india's priorities in terms of the development of these devices is it to feed for example the 100 smart cities uh, that the government is planning or is it for export purposes uh it would primarily be for uh, local purposes and i think the two biggest applications that i see are in uh, manufacturing retail uh and smart cities for sure Peter what do you think about this I and mean, you were talking about um India perhaps being one of the places that one could look to for growth in the next few years does this bode well I I think so I mean what what I love about this is the idea that these internet enabled devices can actually start talking to each other so you know you you have all sorts of potential there you know if you're if you're late for a meeting or your train's delayed it could send a message to your car in the car park you know there's so much potential here and India is an ideal um sort of hub for you know for development of these types of products Ishwar what about issues of things like privacy and hacking scandals uh you know things that are pretty thoroughfare common thoroughfare and you know could certainly happen uh, with devices like this absolutely uh, i mean security is an issue today on the internet uh, fast becoming one of the top issues but with the internet of things security and privacy are probably the top challenges both from a technical as well as a regulatory perspective uh, paradoxically the very principle that makes internet of things powerful is the potential to share data in real time with everyone and everything you know so all of these devices are connected to databases and processes and to each other uh, and that creates a huge cybersecurity threat and the implications of uh, this to privacy are unlawful surveillance active intrusion in private life uh, compromising the data of businesses etc so what's really needed is a slightly different approach uh, to security uh, than we have today kind of a two step approach which monitors uh, the device user through traditional means, traditional means uh, like we do today but also monitors the state of the devices in use and this is not uh, actually looking for problems but just kind of a continuous uh, check on what is happening you know so that's kind of uh, how i see the the security kind of evolve in the internet of things okay thank Now, you so much ishwar uh, unfortunately we're out of time that is ishwar uh, parulkar okay. the chief technology officer of cisco india Well, arbitration can be a useful way to resolve disputes when other channels have been exhausted. My colleague Chris Oliver joins me in the studio now to discuss the story. Good morning, Chris. Last week, Samsung Electronics initiated an arbitration proceeding in Hong Kong against Microsoft. This is in a dispute involving smartphone patent royalties. The South Korean company applied to the Hong Kong office of the International Court of Arbitration, quote, to resolve a dispute concerning the calculation of success credits. This is under a business collaboration agreement with Microsoft. Uh, we're joined on the program now by Ruth Stackpool-Moore. She's deputy chief executive of the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning, Chris. In this case with Samsung, is this part of a trend that companies are turning more towards arbitration rather than the courts for dispute resolution? It's a 
certainly is, Chris. Um, we see at our centre increasing numbers of cases every year, which reflects a, go- a global trend um, for companies to choose arbitration. Um, it can be more cost-effective and quicker, but also you can take the judgment, which is called an award, uh, and enforce it in about 150 different countries around the world, which has huge advantages if you're dealing with cross-border transactions. So how does that work? If you're outside the jurisdiction where the arbitration ruling comes through, it's actually enforceable overseas? That's right. There's an international agreement which has these 152 countries signed up to. And basically, once the countries sign up to that, they commit to enforcing the awards issued in other countries that have also signed up. It sounds like it's a lot cheaper than going through the courts. It certainly can be. It's much more flexible, um, and that's one of the main advantages of the process, too. Um, You're not bound by the the same strict rules of of court. And how does one become an arbitrator? I know that there's a conference underway now, and you host some educational forums and and other sort of training measures. So... We do, that's right. We run a lot of training programs and right now we're in the middle of Hong Kong Arbitration Week. Um, This is the third annual event um, that we've held. Um, We've got 350 different leading arbitration professionals from around the world here this week to discuss um, hot topics in arbitration. But how to become an arbitrator, there's there's two ways. Um, It's open to those who are legally trained. Um, But it is also possible for those with particular expertise in other fields, such as engineers or or surveyors, um, who then take that expertise and need to build on that knowledge, um, and then they can also sit as arbitrators. And and how does Hong Kong compare, Ruth, to other sort of global centres for arbitration? Is this a good place, um, you know, to go and launch arbitration-type proceedings? It certainly is, Peter. Um, So Hong Kong has had the HKIC here since 1985, Um, so we have a long track record of expertise, and we're really recognised within the top few um, international arbitration centres. One of the more recognised reporting bodies about arbitration actually says there's now 40-plus international arbitration institutions trying to emulate Hong Kong's success. Um, So it really is a centre for this type of thing. So when when, when one person opts for arbitration, uh, the, the, the sort of missing link here is that there's no lawyer to advise you on how to proceed with your case to you know, give you some strategic advice. Are arbitrators ever put on the spot? Are they asked by their clients to kind of help them with sort of decision making? Um, just to clarify, when you do go through an arbitration process, you, you can be represented by a lawyer. Um, you don't have to be. Um, so you can have someone guiding you through the process. In terms of arbitrators being asked to assist the parties, um, they will do so, but so long as they're treating the parties equally. Um, that's one of the tenets of arbitration. Okay, that's all for now. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Stockpool-Moore. Thank you. And thank you, Chris, for that uh very informative segment. A quick look at the numbers before we depart. The Nikkei is open. It is down 2.5% to 14,703. Australia's ASX index is down 1.3% to 5,171. And Sol's Kospi also down 1% to 1,906. Uh, Peter, before we uh, close shop for the day, what is, what is it that we should be looking out for later this week? Um, well, we should look out actually within the bond markets, particularly the junk bond markets, because there's been a real explosion in um, in yields upwards in, in junk bonds. And junk bonds are used to finance all these share buybacks that we see in equity markets. Um, and it has a real impact. And there's been a strong correlation between the declines we've seen in equity markets and junk bonds. Yields. Okay. Thank you, Peter. That's Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting, my co-host for this morning. 
A quick look at the weather forecast for today. We'll have one or two rain patches at first, but mainly fine during the day. The maximum temperature will be about 28 degrees Celsius. The, 20, uh, the, the temperature right now is 24 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 78%. And now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. Police officers have fired pepper spray during scuffles with protesters after a crowd once again surged into Longwall Road in Admiralty last night. There's only a few dozen protesters remaining on either side of the road, watched by an equal number of police. Janice Wong has details. A number of people rushed out into the carriageway late last night, dragging plastic barriers and other objects into the road. But they were met by scores of police officers and soon retreated to the pavements. The number of people in the area then swelled and the standoff ensued, with police lining the roads to block demonstrators and keep traffic flowing. Around 2 a.m., a confrontation broke out, reportedly when police moved to detain a man who'd thrown a water bottle on the road. Police reinforcements arrived and officers fired pepper spray at protesters during chaotic scenes. Hundreds of people took over a section of Arsenal Street outside police headquarters for several hours last night to protest over the beating of Civic Party member Ken Jung by police yesterday. They demanded a police spokesman come out to explain in detail how the force would handle the case, but decided to stage an impromptu sit-in when officers blocked their way, warning them they may be arrested. The protesters gradually dispersed around 4am and traffic lanes reopened. Over 100 people also lined up to make formal complaints about the beating of Mr Jung. Here's Labour Party lawmaker Fernando Jung. We have prepared CD-ROMs with 